Welcome to episode 14 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Jessica Fujimoto, resident at Temple University Hospital and RSA Board Liaison to the Education Committee, speaks with Dr. Niels Rathleb, Chair and Professor of Emergency Medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Bay State, and Dr. Martin Resnick, Associate Professor, Vice Chair of Clinical Operations and Fellowship Director of the Administrative Fellowship at University of Massachusetts Memorial. Today, Drs. Fujimoto, Rathleb, and Resnick discuss emergency medicine administration and the importance of completing a fellowship in administration. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the RSA podcast. This is Jessica. I am one of the RSA board members, and I am the liaison to the Education Committee. Here with me today is Dr. Niels Rathleb, who is Chair and Professor of Emergency Medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Bay State and Dr. Martin Resnick, who is Associate Professor, Vice Chair of Clinical Operations, and Fellowship Director of the Administrative Fellowship at University of Massachusetts Memorial. Thank you guys for being here. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having us. Could you each tell me a little bit about yourselves and how you became interested in emergency medicine administration? Well, I can start. I've, since I've been at this game for a long time, I've been practicing emergency medicine now for 34 years. And I'll actually say that at the start of my career, my goal was really to become an academic faculty and subsequently program director. Subsequently, my chair at the time encouraged me to become, go an administrator route. Turned out our medical director quit, and he needed a medical director and a vice chair, and he encouraged me to do it. And it's a little bit of a, a long story, but I thought that being a program director was the best job that I'd had. It was my life's dream to do that work. And I still think that, actually, to be honest. But after multiple negotiations, I was able to carve out academic time for myself to continue to write, and I became the vice chair. And I think that in retrospect, I think that there was a reason that Dr. Moyer asked me to do it. And I think sometimes people see certain strengths in, in your work, and they try to encourage you to go that route. And so I sort of left the program director position and focused, have, ever since then, have focused on administrative matters. I think I had a similar course to Niels. I started in a very traditional academic position, was running the simulation program at Emory after I had completed residency. And I got involved, actually, in some process improvement projects, which were some processes that I saw that could be improved and wanted to be part of the solution as opposed to just complaining, and quickly learned that I enjoyed the process, felt that I could really do some good for the patients as well as the providers in that, and enjoyed it. So I got involved in a couple of those projects and then realized that maybe potentially to do a career out of that. In retrospect, the leadership in my residency program and department where I had trained in Detroit were heavily involved in hospital administration as well as regional EMS administration. And it was just natural for the EM providers there to become leaders within healthcare administration. And I think that in the background was sort of part of my pedigree of training underneath those folks, and it was just a natural progression. I then, Niels got thrown into the fire right away in some sense by taking on a leadership position. I went and realized that I didn't really have the skill set to do it at that time. I was very junior and went back and did an administrative fellowship to gain that skill set. And then it has just sort of taken off from there. 
Yeah, so my path was obviously different in that I trained back in the early 80s. And back then, there were no administrative fellowships. So I did not uh, get an MBA. I didn't do an administrative fellowships. And so there's some contrast between the career paths the two of us have taken. And I learned how to be an administrator the hard way, which is I was thrown into the fire and I just did it. And I learned by experience. Yeah, that's a great point. And for that reason, it's wonderful to have both of you here to get sort of the different paths that you took. So that's very interesting. For residents, at least in my program, I find that the curriculum is very limited in how much exposure we have to administrative issues in emergency medicine, even though it's something that's sort of omnipresent and it's there in your day-to-day every shift. It's something you deal with whether you realize it or not. What ways do you see that programs can integrate more administrative issues into their curriculum? I think it's becoming increasingly important, particularly with altering payment structures. The administrative work is actually taking on much more importance. And I think that as a chair, vice chair, chief resident, program director, you really have an ability to create change to a much greater degree than if you didn't have those types of roles. And I think that eventually, I think that the way that I became interested and what continues to make me interested in this kind of work is that all along I saw folks in leadership positions and I thought I could do better. Or I thought that there were ways that I could do things differently. Now, I may have been wrong, or I may have been right, but that's what I thought. And so I thought that this was a chance to really do things better and have an impact over a much larger group of people, including patients, residents, faculty, and other departments as well. I think residents need to remember that your job number one is to learn to be an outstanding physician first and foremost. As you try to figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your career, which is a really hard thing to do during residency, a component of that is exposure within the residency. One of the things that our program director at the UMass Memorial Campus has set up a program of distinction tracks where all of the residents are expected to, I think we meet quarterly, and it's part of the weekly conference. And on once a quarter, you split out amongst the distinction tracks, and we want run an administrative distinction track. I am ultimately responsible for it, but one of my clinical directors has now taken the helm for that. And we discuss various topics related to process improvement, administrative work, and so it gives a set of residents exposure to that. In general, although this isn't absolutely standardized, the first years sort of have the ability to, to jump around and check out the different distinction tracks that might be of interest, and we encourage them to then start to focus in on one, although that's not set. If they want to change later, they can, but then to focus in and get involved. The other way for residents to really get involved in this, there's always process improvement projects going on. And at the end of the day, I think some get a little intimidated of going to the chair's office or going to the vice chair's office. But I personally hold an open-door policy, and I suspect that most vice chairs and chairs, I know Nils is the same way, come on, ask. If you don't even know what it means to be an administrator, come have a conversation. And if there's something that's of mutual interest, we will always get you involved. One thing to remember as a resident, chairs went into this because they believe in the education and the research mission, and they always have an open door. Every chair I know has an open door for the residents. That's some great advice. And the track system is really interesting in residency curriculum. It seems to be growing more and more prevalent. I know when I interviewed, a lot of programs were starting to do that. So that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, just to comment on that, I think that the tracks in residencies are a good thing and a way for residents to subspecialize, if you will. But I actually would recommend no matter what kind of track training you undertake in your residency, 
consider doing a fellowship. I think it's becoming more and more important, and it certainly would be important if you're considering an academic career. It's becoming less common that we're hiring faculty who do not have fellowship training. That actually goes along well with my next question. I was wondering what sort of interests you see in common in residents that pursue an administrative fellowship in particular. So I think they have a broad view of healthcare, not only within the institution, but also more broadly, and want to try to make a difference for a broader population rather than just their fellow residents or their fellow fellows or their fellow faculty. I think that's the commonalities that I see in this. And I think that the ability to influence systems to make them better, and I think to Martin's point, there isn't a faculty meeting that goes by when faculty don't complain about something or other, and legitimately so. But this really gives you an opportunity to actually make a difference. Because in the end, if the CEO or the CFO or the dean wants to create change, they're going to go to the chair or the vice chair to try to create that. They're not going to go to the rank-and-file faculty. So I think residents self-select. You can pick them out pretty quickly. And maybe it just starts with, I want to be chief resident. And obviously, you shouldn't do it just because of the accolades you get for wanting to being chief resident. You should do it because you want to make a difference. In terms of characteristics of folks that go into and are successful, and when we say administration, I personally mean leadership. There's management, administration, and the global term is leadership. And Niels alluded to this earlier. I think folks that are successful and do well in this are ambitious. I think, unfortunately, ambition is often used as a negative term, but I quite mean it opposite of that. It's a positive term. It's people that feel like they can do better, potentially. And whether you're right or wrong, at least you have the vision that you can do better. And the other component to it is people that look at the global good. There are folks that are very laser-focused on certain aspects of the academic practice, and they absolutely are necessary to drive academic practice into the future. But in terms of leadership, it's folks that can see the global picture and in general have the ability to get along with most people. I think those are the folks that gravitate toward this and frankly are successful in the long run. You guys alluded to this a lot, talking about academic leadership. Are there other positions that doctors hold after completing an administration fellowship? The answer is yes. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but there are two types of fellowships, essentially, in my opinion. There are ones that are sort of very focused on ED operations, and then there's ones that get a little bit broader past that. I think all of them, to be a successful EM administrative fellowship, you have to focus on ED operations. That's necessary. But there are others that expand past that. And so some of them do give exposure to hospital administration, state organizations, such as local chapters or SAEM. There's a number of ways that for different fellowships can expose that. So it's not just necessarily leadership within a single clinical operations of a department. It's leadership on a global basis. And the skill sets that you learn from that apply into any leadership position. In fact, my first position out of my administrative fellowship was to be the vice president of quality for the hospital at, at Detroit Receiving Hospital, which was a huge leap, frankly. I don't know that I was completely set for that job with an administrative fellowship. But the point being is it does open doors for many things outside of just ED operations or ED departmental management. So I think that that's, I would reiterate that point as well. So certainly I know of a number of chief medical officers at the hospitals, including yours and mine, Martin, who are emergency physicians. There are deans of medical schools in this country that are emergency physicians and certainly CEOs as well. In fact, the CEO at UMass of the health system is an emergency physician. 
So I think that uh, there's much more to this than looking at emergency medicine leadership in and of itself. And I think the advantage is also of coming from an emergency medicine background is that we interact on a daily basis with just about every single department in a hospital. So we have a wide range of relationships with different departments, medicine, surgery, finance, ancillary services in hospitals. So we learn how operations work, and we establish a lot of hopefully very positive relationships with hospital leadership. And I think that that actually prepares us for these types of positions. Thank you. That's really interesting. I think in residency, it's just thinking forward to the next step a lot or just really getting by day to day. And so I think it's really helpful to think about things on a much broader scale like you guys are talking about. Administrative fellowships often involve obtaining an advanced degree like an MBA or an MPH. And I was wondering what you guys thought about the advantage of obtaining an advanced degree with the fellowship or if there's any utility to the fellowship without the advanced degree. Well, there is a utility to both. But I would say that in retrospect, that having an MBA, I think, is certainly an advantage. It could be an MHA as well or another advanced master's degree. And primarily what you learn there is some of the things that have taken me years to learn, you will learn in two years. And so, for example, financial accounting. You will learn the language, and also you have a certain amount of credibility when you talk to your chief financial officer if you have MBA behind your name. But you have to understand the language. When they talk about contribution margin, total margin, cash days on hand, things like that, you have to understand the importance of these things. And and a lot of it is just like medical school or law school is that you learn the language. It's not necessarily inherently difficult to comprehend, but you have to learn the language. So what took me... Five, 10 years to learn. I sat down when I got the job as chair. I sat down with our CFO and he taught me financial accounting over a couple of weeks. Well, I wouldn't have had to do that if I had had an MBA very early on in my career. I did do an MBA as part of my fellowship training. It was not required. I opted to do that because I saw some advantage potentially to it. I will say, first and foremost, it is not essential. I think experience is king. You can't beat experience, and that's just the reality of it. There are things that you can learn from the books and an MBA program, just like medical school, that you really don't know how to put into practice until you gain the experience. So in terms of the value of it and the utility, it absolutely establishes a foundation probably earlier in your career than you would get through experience, and you can build off it. So it gave me a head start in some sense in terms of career progression. But I can't emphasize enough, it is not sufficient. Just because you finish an MBA, you are not qualified to be a leader. You have the theory behind it, but you need to practice it to be successful. I will agree 100% with Niels. It gives you a new vocabulary to allow you to interact with individuals that you like CFOs, some hospital CEOs. It gives you a little bit of credibility with them. Deserved or not, you have the stamp of an MBA behind it. Again, it's your substance that's more important. But it does give you a little leg up with them, and you can speak the same language. There is some debate a little bit about whether an MBA versus an MHA or one of the other sort of acronyms out there, MMM, et cetera. The advantage in my mind of why I did an MBA was it had broader utility. If I ever decided in my career I wanted to go outside of hospital or ED operations, the MBA is respected in many industries, whereas some industries out there, and I'm not qualifying this at all, they're not familiar with an MHA necessarily. But at the, at the same token, an MHA is much more focused on hospital management. So there's some value in both, and I'm sure that question will come up with folks, and it's very much a personal decision of which one is right for you in your career. I think an MBA certainly is a broader degree. 
that you can take outside of hospital administration, for example, if you want to go into private industry. So I think it has broader application. The other thing I'd just say about the MBA, and I agree that there are things that you don't learn at Harvard Business School. And when I became a chief of an emergency department, I was 37 years old, and I basically got thrown into it. And I made mistakes. There's nothing like feeling the heat of making decisions that are difficult decisions. Early on in your career, these are things that you would not learn in business school, how to do that. And you have to actually feel the anxiety and look for people who can give you the right advice in terms of how you're going to manage the situation. And that's something you really only learn by doing. That's very interesting. Dr. Rathlev, can you give us an example of a time when you felt that maybe having done a fellowship in administrative medicine would have been helpful for you when you first started as chair? Yeah, well, absolutely. I think particularly the financial accounting piece. So I can add and subtract pretty well, and I can balance my checkbook pretty well. And honestly, looking at balance sheets and P&Ls is not that different, but you have to know the language. And so this is why I asked my chief financial officer if he would sit down and spend some time with me. And we actually became friends, and he sat down and explained to me the difference between the various terms, like contribution margin, total margin, things like that actually are important to understand. And also the understanding how cost accounting works in hospitals, which is really important. For example, typically there's a Part A and a Part B, Part B being the facility, sorry, the professional side of billing, Part A being the facility side of billing, and often they're looked at in silos. So you might make decisions about your budgets on the professional side, meaning professional billing for what the physicians bill, that have grave impacts on what happens on the Part A side, but that's not accounted for. So you need to look at them as a total. Otherwise, you end up with maybe having advantages on one side, but then you actually lose more money on the other side in the aggregate. And so these are very important concepts that I think even CFOs sometimes forget. Thank you. And then last question, Dr. Resnick, can you talk about your time in fellowship and what you liked about it, what you didn't like about it? Uh, sure. Actually, I think fellowship was two of the best professional years of my life, frankly. The key components to it, and for somebody that's looking for a fellowship, you have to understand who your mentors are going to be and do you fit with them. And I was lucky enough to have two mentors that came at leadership in very different ways, and I got to learn from both of them. The particular fellowship I was in, I had exposure both to the chair of the department, but also the previous chair had become a hospital president. And I was dragged into every meeting, things that opened my eyes to things that I did not even know existed as a resident or, frankly, a junior faculty member. I was in at hospital board meetings, some very tough decisions that were made. And so I think that it was an invaluable experience. The key is a graded responsibility. So in the beginning, I was pretty much a fly on the wall, and I watched these other very accomplished leaders and sort of learned by watching. And then slowly, progressively, I don't think I realized it was going on or that it was intentional, but I know that it was in retrospect, more and more graded responsibility and really putting me out there to try for myself and somebody would catch me if I fell, but challenging me to really push my boundaries. I have specifically crafted my fellowship that I run now in that model, and I think it's an invaluable experience. You know, unlike Nils, who learned probably quicker than I did by being thrown into the fire and was ultimately responsible, I had some graded responsibility. So it was a little bit more of a comfortable progression for me in some sense. 
And so I speak of it as a wonderful time in my professional career to be able to watch some individuals that had 20 years under their belt of doing the same thing that I learned from. And again, that in combination with the master's level training gave me a little bit of a head start down the road in a comfortable, safe environment. As And the last piece that I think is important is folks look at fellowships. You really want a fellowship out there that will progress you to be responsible for stuff. You don't really truly learn the practice unless you're ultimately responsible for something. So finding a fellowship that allows for that is an important thing. And I know Nielsen and I agree on this wholeheartedly. Thank you very much, you guys. This has been very, very insightful. So it sounds like for residents that are ambitious, think maybe they want to go into leadership either on a hospital level or department level or global level and are maybe interested in process improvement should consider pursuing an administrative fellowship and they may already know who they are. I would actually just add something and I think that it's important that as a leader in emergency medicine or in any other situation whether you're chair or vice chair that you have to care about people. Early on in your career Let's say you are a junior-level researcher and you're trying to establish your career. You eat, live, and breathe your research, and it's about your productivity. When you become chair or vice chair, it's not about you anymore. It's about your faculty and your residents and, and the medical students that you train. And you have to make that transition, and it's not for everybody. It's not everybody, I think, can make that transition, but really the success of your faculty and your residents is really your success. And you have to be able to make that transition to be a successful leader, I think. Yeah, I'll back that up. I think that there is this, with some people, this negative notion of folks that go into leadership and administrative positions that, again, it's the positive and the negative forms of ambition. There is this perception, I think it's incorrect, of personal ambition. And folks that are personally ambitious go into these types of roles, whether it's for money or prestige or power. Frankly, I feel that most of those individuals that do it for those reasons fail. I mean, it is really, ultimately, I think the good leaders are selfless. There is no question in my career, I had to make a distinct transfer from focusing on my own progression to those of others. And the best leaders, frankly, do more good, even though they may not be have direct contact with a process improvement as a chair, because that is mentoring others to do that. There's a multiplier effect of how much good you do. And I think folks that are really, truly successful in administrative positions, that's their ultimate desire, is to do more global good by mentoring other folks through that rather than doing it themselves. Yeah, I think you have to understand the value of personal relationships. I think that's critical. And I think that more than anything else, you have to be someone who's open to establishing and interested in establishing personal relationships with others. And you have to be able to accept criticism. And we see that on the national political stage today, that not being able to accept criticism gracefully and accept feedback that is constructive, I think, can lead to problems. That all sounds like really great advice and are good things to keep in mind for any resident, really, but in particular, someone that might be interested in pursuing this career path. I will put this out there, and I suspect I speak for both of us, but not only do I have an open door in my own department, but anyone that's hearing this podcast, if you're interested and just need some advice, or at a program that you don't feel you necessarily have the local resources and you want to talk about this, absolutely feel free to reach out. My last name is Resnick, as was announced, and you can find my email easily online. Yes, same with me. Well, thank you guys so much for your time. This, like I said, has been very, very interesting and enlightening. So it was really wonderful to have you guys here. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, 
please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.